to direct your attention to this morning are found once again in the book of Colossians. We'll be reading Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Please pray with me. Thank you for all that you've revealed to us in your word. But especially, we, we thank you for the book of Colossians and the abundant promises that are here. Or as we have grown to understand what it means that we are united with Christ. And Lord, we want to continue to live out the, the wonderful realities of our faith. And so even as we look at your word this morning, I pray for more grace that, the, that what we hear would not just strengthen our mind and understanding, but it would transform us. That we'd be changed on account of it. Lord, we would not just know that we need to put off sin and better understand our identity in Christ, but that we truly would put off sin and truly would be more Christ-like. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're in our midst of a study of Colossians where Paul has been explaining how to deal with sin. Now, the, the false teachers in Colossae apparently had made a big deal of putting off sin. And they, they suggested that one could decisively deal with sin simply by following certain man-made rules and restrictions. To do not handle, do not taste, do not touch as we see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 21. But as Paul concludes this chapter, chapter 2, he notes that such things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping indulgence of the flesh. So Paul's point is that mere rule-keeping is completely ineffective when it comes to trying to resist sin. Sure, through self-discipline, some people can stop certain patterns of sin, but they can't use self-discipline to change the reality of sin as it exists in the inner man. At best, they're just merely exchanging one kind of sin for another. As Jesus said, it is from within, out of the heart of man, that come evil thoughts Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He says all these things come from within. And this is because sin is rooted in the heart of man. Sin is not just something that we do, lie or steal or cheat. Sin is a force. It is a destructive power that brings decay and death. And that's why it can't just be merely dealt with on a superficial level. And really all this is because men and women, we're all born sinners. Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So this tells us that sin is both inherited, it is also part of our nature. In fact, Paul indicates in Ephesians 2.3 that men are by nature, by nature sinners, children of wrath, he says. Remember, the Bible tells us that every part of man, every part of every person is corrupted by sin. In fact, the Bible's most thorough description of sin is found in its opening chapters in Genesis chapter 6. Where he says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So, so sin is not just something we do. It's part of our nature and it has corrupted every man and every part of man down into the very depths of our being. We are by nature. It's our nature to sin is what the Bible says. And so if that's true, how can we go against our nature? If that's true, how can one decisively deal with sin in their life if it's not through just following good rules and being self-disciplined? Well, they can't. No one can. Unless they're miraculously transformed. Unless they're born again, to use Jesus' phrase with Nicodemus in John 3. Unless they're regenerated or united to Christ, to use Paul's term in Colossians. The only way a person can be even begin to put sin to death is if their hearts are transformed by Christ, if they're regenerated. Paul explains this in Titus 3, which we read earlier, when he says, We were once foolish, disobedience, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, but... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The reason we can put sin to death is because the Holy Spirit has transformed our hearts. We're born again. And because we are now united to Christ, as Paul has been explaining in Colossians, we can put sin to death. Paul doesn't offer this command idly. We have the power to put every vestige of sin to death because we're united with Christ. And so in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3, Paul presents four reasons why Christians should be putting their sin to death. Now we looked at the first two. Sorry, Wyatt, this is, doesn't seem to be working today. Not sure why. We looked at the first two 
par, uh, reasons last week puts to death sinful behavior because of the wrath of God. Verses five and six. And to put to death sinful behavior because what was once normal in us is now our past. And then in verse 10, he, which we'll look at today, he calls us to put to death sinful behavior because we're now being made like Christ. And then finally, in verse 11, we need to put to death sin because we find our full identity in Christ. And so you can think of this as the reasons being because of the wrath of God, because of our past, because of our present and our future, and because of our current identity. Let's look at that third point in verse 10. We need to put to death sinful behavior because we are now being made like Christ. Good. Next one. Thanks, brother. The third reason Paul gives in this passage why Christians should cease their sinful behavior is because they're now being conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 10. And put off the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So when a person is saved, they're finally able to be like Christ. They literally become a new creation. So they're not only eternally united to Christ, but they begin to be conformed to his likeness. Romans 8.29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We were saved. We were predestined to salvation to be conformed to Christ. Paul says in verse 10 here, moreover, that this transformation actually takes place through the renewal of knowledge. We grow up into Christ's likeness, in other words, as our minds are renewed by the word of God. What we learn in Scripture literally transforms the way we think and therefore the way we act. We grow up into Christ's likeness as we grow in our understanding of God's Word. Another way to say this is we realize our new identity as our knowledge of God's Word increases. That's why he says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Now remember how Paul addressed this Back in chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the first day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he, He wants the Colossians to grow in knowledge and understanding, verse 10, so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God increase in understanding of what God has said and what he's revealed in his word, and you will increase in your faithfulness to God. The two are inextricably linked. In chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul actually presents his aim in writing to the Colossians. And notice what he says. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of assurance of understanding And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then notice, too, in chapter three, later on in verse 16, he tells the Colossians to let the word of God dwell in them richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 
So this command to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, really is just parallel to what Paul told the Romans in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind. So that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As your mind is renewed, you're able to discern what God's will is for you, and you're able to walk in it. And this really just speaks directly to how the Word of God is one of the primary means of grace. The Word of God is one of the primary means God uses to conform us to Christ. When we engage the Word through listening to preaching, or just reading it on our own, or studying it, or memorizing it, uh, any exposure we have to the Word of God, this has an effect of making us more Christ-like, assuming we understand what we're reading. This is why Peter exhorts believers in 1 Peter 2, like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. By the word you may grow up into salvation. Sometimes a Christian will, will say they're not growing. They just feel like they're stunted in their growth. They felt like maybe when they first became a believer, they, they had immediate progress. But after the years, now they've just kind of stopped growing. Now, that could be because they've just stopped engaging in the Word of God. They're no longer reading it. Or it's also possible they're not going to a church where they're being fed well. But it's also possible that they just hardened their heart. They're, they're getting good teaching. They're even reading the Bible, but they're not approaching it with an, a desire to actually be changed. Maybe it's just because they want to know more so they can win arguments. But that's not the intention of the Word of God. The intention of the Word of God is that we might know His will so that we would live out His will. Right? Isaiah chapter 66, 2 says, the Lord through His prophet says, to this one I will look. This is the kind of worshiper I want, is what God is saying. To one who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. That's what worship looks like. Right? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge has a purpose. We've just been reading that. But it has an end. It's not just to give us understanding, but so that understanding would lead to application. And our church offers Sunday school classes and discipleship groups and Bible studies, not so that we can get merit badges or impress one another with what we're learning or how much we know. We do these things. We offer these things because it's the church's responsibility to help people grow. The, the goal is growth. And Christians grow as they learn and apply what the scriptures teach. Now, our mission as a church is, is super simple. We, this, is, this, is our, this, this is our mission, simply put. We want to be a church of maturing Christians who help others also grow in Christ-likeness. We want to grow in Christ-likeness, and we want to help others grow in Christ-likeness. That's it. And one of the way, main ways the Bible says this happens is through the Word of God. And really, we want every single person in this room to be like the man that's described in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What's the result? Verse three, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You want to know how to handle the storms of life that will come? Have your convictions rooted deeply in the word of God. If you want to grow in the image of your creator, and it says here, you need to immerse yourself in God's word. Now, a person might say, okay, I want to grow in the image of my creator, but wait a second. Image of my creator, aren't all men made in the image of God? So aren't I already in the image of my creator? Well, it's true. All men are made in God's image, but that image has been severely marred by sin. We don't look like at all like we should look. Man was made in God's image primarily to lead the rest of creation in worship. But that's not what mankind has done. Instead, we have taken the blessings that God has given us. And instead of leading creatures to worship the creator, instead, we want creatures to worship creatures. And if we're honest, ourselves. We're self-worshippers. And so Christ came in order to restore the perfect image that man was created to have of him so that we could fulfill our created purpose. We need to recognize that Christ succeeded where Adam failed. He is therefore the new Adam, as it speaks of in Romans. Christ also succeeded where Israel failed. Israel was called to be a light to the nations, to be a holy people, and they weren't. And so that's why Christ was called the true Israel. That's that's why his, that's, that's his identity is it's described in Isaiah as the servant of Yahweh. He would be everything Israel failed to be. And just remember how Jesus is first described in the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is everything man was supposed to be. He was the perfect imager, the perfect man. So Jesus died not just to forgive us of our sins and to provide an atonement for our sins, but he died, he died in order to enable men to fulfill their created purpose, to restore us to what God had always designed us to be. And this, of course, is what's being pictured in the heavenly throne room in Revelation 4 and 5. As the chorus around the throne says, beginning in verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped all of creation. In other words, is being led by men in the worship of the one true God. That's what's being pictured in that scene. 
Then it begs this question, okay, if I now have been born again, I've been transformed. And in, the purpose of that is so that I might worship God truly and lead creation in worship. How do I practically do that? How, how does a born-again person lead creation in worship? Well, it's not by leading an orchestra of plants and trees and hills and mountains and creatures and singing the Hallelujah Chorus. It's much simpler than that. Singing is just an expression of worship. Worship, rightly understood, is Deuteronomy 6.4. Loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength. So we lead creation in worship by truly worshiping. And by truly leading. Right? The biblical concept of leadership is... By example, it's taking responsibility and then exemplifying what that looks like. And so we lead in worship by exemplifying what it looks like to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and all our strength. So how do we lead in worship? Be an example. Love God with all your being. Which begs, of course, this question. How are you doing at that? How are you doing at leading your family in worship? How are you doing at leading your coworkers in worship? How do you show your neighbors that God is everything to you? All who are united to Christ are having the image of God fully restored to them. And with, that's exactly why, rather than being conformed to the sinful, degra- sinful degradation of this world around us, Christians seek to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be true worshipers. And that's what leads us to the fourth reason Paul gives for why we should put to death sinful behavior. And that is because all Christians find their complete identity in Christ. Notice verse 11 here that is in the church. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. The simple point of this verse is that verse is that Christ is everything to a Christian and Christians find their complete and entire identity in him, in what he's accomplished and who he is. It's no longer bound up in their ethnicity being a Jew or a Gentile. Their identity isn't bound up in their religious accomplishments or affiliations, being circumcised or uncircumcised. Nor is their identity in their language or culture. Barbarian, Scythian. That that term barbarian just referred to anybody that was non-Roman and non-Greek. Didn't speak one of the classical languages of Latin and Greek. So we'd be included in that, I suppose. And the Scythians were a particularly rough group of people. Nomadic barbarians that settled around the Black Sea. Herodotus notes that Scythian warriors were actually known to drink the blood of their victims in battle. And they collected heads and scalps of them. And they would sew these scalps together 
and, and the skins from their fallen enemies to make cloaks and quivers for their arrows. It actually said that they tore off the scalps of the prisoners using their fingernails. It's a particularly gruesome group of people. And Paul's point is that no matter how uncouth a person's culture is, if they're in Christ, that's not their identity any longer. They're not a former Scythian. They're not even Scythian. They're a Christian. Their identity is no longer in their vocation or economic status either. Neither slave nor free. All believers find their full identity in Christ. Their ethnicity is Christian. Their greatest accomplishments are Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 1. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The only thing we have to boast in is what He's done. We don't, all of our greatest accomplishments mean nothing outside of Christ. That's why Paul says, all that stuff I achieved as a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, I counted all as rubbish in order that I may just gain Christ. Paul says, all of my accomplishments mean nothing. The only thing that means anything is that I'm in Christ. He's my identity. In fact, our highest calling, our highest vocation is the same in the church. That's to honor Christ. Notice how Paul addresses this at the very end of this book. Very end of this chapter. Look at chapter verse 22. Slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Why? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Paul's not living for any accomplishment, any glory in this life. That's why he told the Ephesian elders, I count my life as, as of little importance so that I only I may finish the responsibility that Christ has given me to proclaim the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's point is to emphasize that when a person becomes united to Christ, their entire identity is bound up in him. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. My identity is Christ, is his point. My significance is Christ. A Christian is no longer bound, has, their identity is no longer bound up in their ethnicity, Greek or Jew, their previously religious accomplishments, circumcised, uncircumcised. It's not in their language and culture, barbarian and Scythian. It's not in their vocation or economic status, slave and free. And this, this affects not just how we see ourselves, but it affects how we see other people as well. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, I encourage you to look at it. Chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's probably 10, 15 pages earlier. 
Second Corinthians five verse sixteen. He writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. I'll say it again. We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So not only do we look at ourselves and recognize our identity is Christ. The way we look at other people is the same way. Either they are in Christ and need Christ, or they're a part of Christ just like I am. And that's why unity should be very easy to accomplish within the church. When a person becomes a Christian, they don't evaluate peaceful anymore, or at least they shouldn't, based on the same way the world evaluates people and, and, and identifies people, based upon their, what they do for work, or the color of their skin, their religious accomplishments, their family, their culture, how much money they make. All a Christian should care about, if they rightly understand the gospel, is does this person know Christ or not? And if they do, they love them as a brother or sister, and they do everything they can to to build them up, to encourage them, to support them, to sacrifice for them if they can. And again, if they don't know Christ, they, they do what Paul says in Colossians 4 and verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul's talking about evangelism there. If they don't know Christ, be ready with the gospel. Doesn't be, be obnoxious, but recognize, don't, don't evaluate them based upon just their position or the color of their skin or what they like to listen to for music or how they dress recognize what should ultimately matter to you is they don't know Christ. And you want to help them to know Christ. Now, Colossians 3.11 is a very critical verse for us to, to memorize this day and age. Because of all the confusion regarding racism and social justice and multiculturalism. There's a lot of ideas out there that are not necessarily, that don't necessarily conform to Scripture. And, and really, verse 11 is, is the verse you should go to any time this subject comes up with family, with coworkers. This is how you should respond. True Christians love unbelievers of every race and show this by taking great risks and making real sacrifices to see that they're brought the gospel of salvation. Once those people of different ethnicities are born again, Christians don't identify them as different from themselves. Their identities are fully bound up in Christ. Right? A soul is a soul is a soul. We identify people based upon their souls and their need for Christ. Race to a Christian is as insignificant as a person's hobbies or the music they like. Different ages or different income levels. 
They're, again, their identity isn't bound up in their race, income levels, physical appearance, mental or physical disability, social standing, their history of sin. Again, if anyone's in Christ, their whole identity is Christ. And that's not to deny that there are superficial differences among us. I mean, that's obvious. We like different kinds of music. We like different kinds of food. There are superficial differences, but the fact is they don't matter. They're superficial differences. That's not our identity. At least it shouldn't be. Just as a, a brother or sister in a family don't look the same, they don't like to do the same things, but that doesn't mean they're not part of the same family. It's insignificant. What's significant is their brothers and sisters. Race, culture, ethnicity are, are merely superficial, insignificant differences. Along with all the other things. And the world might disagree because for the world. Identity is everything to them. And so they're going to want to puff up where they find their identity. And they're going to cling to it. No matter if that identity is in sin or in their race or in their accomplishments. But for Christians, Christ is all and in all. And this is why one just one reason why interracial marriage is no issue for Christians. And any, any form of ethnocentrism is simply silly and foolish. For a person to cling to any ounce of racism really is to deny their true identity in Christ. To cling to any ounce of racism is to deny one's true identity in Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And it's for this reason I don't think that churches need to be purposely multiracial or multicultural. Because, again, Christians just don't care about that stuff. Right? We're not going to be a church that just simply seeks to reach out, reach out to people of one economic status or people of one kind of disability. A soul is a soul is a soul. No matter the color of their skin, no matter their hobbies, no matter their interests, if they want to grow in Christ, they're family. And there is equally important to us as anybody else. We don't care about a person's race. We care about their worship. And just imagine if, if parents declared that they, they were going to become a multi-gender family. You would think, well, if God gives you all boys, shouldn't you just love whatever God gives you? That's not impressive. I mean, as a, isn't that what a family is? You just love what God gives you? Likewise, a church should be the same way. You don't necessarily seek to just minister to one group. Minister to anybody that wants Christ. Well, what about Christians who do struggle with ethnocentricity and racism? You know, like the, the certain churches in the South. Well, I think you'd have to say true, races, true, true racists can't be Christians. 
Because such a mentality is violently opposed to God's word. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Sounds like Colossians. How do you know? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That is, they're they're not a believer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. At the same time, I think it's possible that because of their upbringing or scars from their past, a person might struggle to trust people of different races, different cultures, different economic statuses. But in such cases, the person needs to be confronted with what the Word of God teaches and to have their mind renewed according to the Scriptures. They need to understand where a person's identity really is found. They don't need to take a class offered by some university based on worldly philosophical principles that aren't true anyway. They just need to understand what the Word of God says. And just as a Christian who struggles with lust needs to continue to combat that sin, knowing that it's antithetical to their new identity, likewise, a person who struggles to love others because they're different from them, they need to combat that tendency in their heart as well doesn't deny that sinful tendencies might exist, but it, but it does assert that a true Christian will be seeking to put that sin to death. And they can put that sin to death because they've been united to Christ. The fact that Christ is all and in all means that Christians find their complete identity in Christ, which means that anything in our lives that doesn't line up with him is something we need to repent from. And have it eliminated from our lives. And it also means that we don't seek to bolster our identity in anything but Christ. We're no longer seeking to grow our admiration by the things of this world. The world identifies us as being rich. And so we we don't seek to gain more riches to bolster identity. Or we don't put our identity in our religious accomplishments or our ethnicity We recognize all that stuff is totally insignificant anymore. When a person comes to Christ, we're not simply embracing a new ideology. Our hearts are transformed. We're born again. We're made into new creations. Our heart becomes Christ's heart. And that that transformation should be clearly evident. It was clearly evident in the life of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. The second song we sung this morning was was also a hymn that he had written. In his early life, Newton was a sailor and he he espoused free-thinking principles. And he remained arrogant and insubordinate. And he lived with moral abandon. He said, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and to seduce others. He eventually found work on a slave ship and eventually became a captain of his own slave ship. 
And his experiences about that he wrote about in a pamphlet entitled Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. And he wrote this 34 years after his conversion. Largely, he said, as, quote, a confession which comes too late. It all it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. He had copies sent to every member of parliament and the the pamphlet sold so well it had to be immediately printed again. Newton freely acknowledged the past wickedness of his life. And yet he did so because he had absolute confidence in his permanent identification in Christ. And some of his last recorded, recorded words were these. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge these things as well. Which is why it is so enriching and strengthening to recognize that we are not what we once were. But our whole identity is bound up in you. I pray that you would strengthen our understanding of the implications of these truths. So we would honor you with all our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.